Season 2, Episode 8. Hello, I'm James Roy Lawson. And I'm Pat Axbom. This is UX Podcast. Nice to have you along. We're here in Stockholm, Sweden, and you're listening to us all over the world from Cyprus to Slovakia. Zoe Rose is a UX designer with a diverse background in the field. Her career began in the UK, where she worked for organizations such as the BBC, Cambridge University Press and GovUK, as well as various startups. After moving to Melbourne, she continued her work with companies like Seek and PwC before becoming a UX trainer at General Assembly. And in late 2018, Zoe relocated to Canberra and established her own training company, Great Question, focusing on user experience, design and design for disability. Also around, I think it was 2018, she was a guest on um, this podcast. Yes, true. We talked about accreditation within UX. But... This time, we're, it's, it's rabbit hole time. Yes, a lovely time. Yeah, we really jumped down a rabbit hole with Zoe. Um, a bit of a history lesson, a fascinating history lesson and, and deep dive, this one. And I think if you assume that you know where the double diamond originated or even design thinking originated, think again because your mind is about to be blown. In a previous episode of UX Podcast, we talked to Chris McCann about brainstorming. And the at least mine and Pear's aim with that episode um, was kind of to help us fix brainstorming, you know, a, a practical correction for, for something we'd been misusing. Um, well, definitely now as designers, but probably for an awful long time. And yes, we, we touched on the history. But I think when we, when Chris, anyway, because I didn't bring the history up, I think it was Chris that brought the history up. When we touched on the history, I think it was used mainly as a tool um, for correction rather than a kind of deliberate investigation and um, exploration into, into what lies behind brainstorming and, and unpacking some of the stuff connected with it. Well, Zoe... That was what you, I mean, you got in touch with us um, to, you know, to bring up other aspects of, of brainstorming that we hadn't included. Well, do you know what? Uh, those criticisms that you just made of brainstorming, they are really valid and they've got a really great precedent uh, because the criticisms of brainstorming started within about a year of brainstorming being invented and released to the public. <laughs> So we can date, yep, I know. So we can date that back to uh, 1953 uh, with a book called Applied Imagination by a guy called Alex Osborne. He's the guy who kind of came up with the method, wrote it down, had a really popular best-selling type of book with it. Um, We did actually mention, Chris actually mentioned him in the show, but that was, it was mentioned and then used as Mm -hmm. uh, the tool for correction rather than diving deep down into actually what he said. Absolutely. Yeah. By the second edition of the book, he's got a new preface in there, which is basically complaining about how nobody understands brainstorming and everybody's doing it wrong. 
<clears throat> and we are still talking about how nobody understands brainstorming and everybody's doing it wrong yeah. <laughs> all these years future. So, in the original setup that Osborne uh, proposed, he broke the brainstorming process down into three distinct phases, each of which had separate and specific rules. The first one of which was a non-judgmental space of collaboration where people would come together to generate solutions as wild as possible to a well-defined problem. The second phase was just walking away, not touching it, preferably overnight. And the third phase was coming back and whittling down uh, the big ideas uh, to try and find the one or two which might actually generate a decent enough solution. Now, those of us who work in design probably already really recognize that process because it's a diverge-converge process. It's diverge to get as many ideas as possible on the table, knowing you'll throw most of them away, and converge the throwing away, whittling them down to the one or two that work. And I think most people listening to this podcast today would be most familiar with the diverge-converge process as it shows up in the double diamond. Yeah, yeah. And uh, some of the things I've been enjoying most about following you on LinkedIn, Zoe, is how you've been telling us all about, well, the double diamond maybe started a bit earlier than everybody thinks. Tell us a bit about the, bit, the, huh? <laughs> tell us a bit about this the, the research you've been doing in this because I'm so impressed by I mean it, some of it must have been so hard to find as well. Uh, yeah, some of it was very hard to find. Uh, I gave a talk last year on this topic, which I gave the cheerful title, uh, uh, Creative Thinking Methodologies, A Lost History. And I kind of cursed myself when I gave it that title because some of it actually is kind of lost and is quite difficult to research. Uh, you but kind of we- think you think things aren't lost anymore because you think ev- you can find everything on the internet. Mm. It's kind of like oh. you know, what, you, what you automatically mm. say, don't you? Oh, we'll find it. But no. No, no, there are, there are some things that are hard to get your hands onto and some things which only exist in really lossy JPEGs. So I, I feel like the lossy JPEG is the, um, uh, is the age darkened paper of our age. Like there are certain <laughs> images on the internet which are just awful quality these days and really hard to find. I wonder so, if that's is that the kind of result of, of of like book scanning and some of the book scanning is, yeah. is done as images rather than I mean back when I was at university of course you had to have microfiche and you had the machines where you you got the right bit of plastic out of an archive somewhere and put it into a machine to to read the the copy of it but now it's lossy JPEGs so instead. That's a robust technology. I I respect a microfiche. Yeah. So one thing that we can say for sure about the double diamond and its uh, correlates creative thinking process model uh, that a lot of people are familiar with, uh, IDEO's design thinking, which is a nice little five-step process, Um, it is relatively straightforward to trace both of those to a common ancestor. That ancestor exists in, well, came to be in 1967. However, the ancestor had ancestors. The ancestor of the ancestor, one of them, is Alex Osborne's diverge-converge brainstorming process. But the ancestor of that ancestor was uh, the concept of diverge-converge itself, which 
came into American thinking uh, at the end of World War II based on some psychological research being done uh, to assess pilot aptitudes by a man called uh, J.P. Guilford. So the ancestor has an ancestor has an ancestor, and it turns out the ancestor of the ancestor of the ancestor has a much older ancestor than that indeed. I'd love to tell you a bit about that 1967 model. Go for it. Okay, go on then. Mm-hmm. Great. Okay. So in diver in the double diamond, we all know it. It goes uh, diverge, converge, diverge, converge with a problem statement in the middle. And we've got our discover, define, develop, deliver, all good. Over on the IDEO side, we have, let's see, have I memorized it? I don't think I have. It's, uh, uh, what is it? Empathize is the first one. Does anyone have it off the top of their heads? Not off the top of my head. Uh, Not off the top of my head. I know they're hexagons. (laughs) Oh, they're hexagons. Oh, I hate the hexagons so much. I am old enough and I have enough HTML in my little mind to say that is not a set of hexagons. That is an ordered list. You use the OL tag and then you just set it out after that. (laughs) So empathize, define, ideate, prototype and test. Thank you very much, Per. That is it exactly. So obviously those two are different. One has four steps. The other has five steps. One has the diverge-converge model. The other is an ordered list pretending to be a bunch of hexagons. Superficially, they have nothing in common. The thing that they do have in common is a uh, earlier model called the Osborne Pans Creative um, uh, Osborne Pans Creative Problem Solving Process which is a five-step process like IDEO where each of the steps was divided, was represented as a diverge-converge diamond like the double diamond. Mm. Now, the Osborne of Osborne Pans is, in fact, Alex Osborne, the man who invented brainstorming. Right. <laughs> oh, no, this is so fascinating. So design thinking is brainstorming. Uh, it's well, you know what? Osborne actually got really annoyed about that because uh, he got annoyed about a lot of things. Bless him. <laughs> he was a he was a really uh, very much like a madman type guy. He was an advertising executive. He had the bristle creamed hair. Um, he looks like he's always smoking cigars. I've never seen a photo of him smoking cigars. It just feels like he should be. Like he's that guy. So. He got really invested in creative problem solving as a a business slash academic pursuit after the success of his brainstorming book, Applied Imagination. Um, And he got really frustrated with people who thought that brainstorming was the be all and end all because as we know as designers, it's absolutely not. Like you can't do the entire process just by coming up with an idea. You actually have to do the thing where you flesh it out right? All those stages, like you you don't prototype in brainstorming, you don't test in brainstorming, all those phases that we see in uh, the um, in design thinking, they're just not there. So as far as Osborne was concerned, brainstorming was a really terrific process, but it was only part one part of a creative problem solving process that actually got to the bit where at the end you've solved the problem. Yeah. And that's what the Osborne Pan's creative problem-solving process was for. You said something earlier, this is how it came into American culture and American knowledge. Uh, 
mm-hmm. because mm-hmm. What, what I think is one of your main points is, and what really gets me is how 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 we accept these tools as truisms in design mm-hmm. in the design industry without even mm-hmm. thinking about whether they are even valid or uh, possible to employ in every context in every culture across the world so and we don't even care about where who actually invented it and why did they and in what context were they operating absolutely couldn't agree with you more per and the thing that i find really interesting about this is that uh, the idea that you can have a process that exists outside of context is actually contextual right? It is contextual to a culture. So what we find in, I'm not American, I'm Australian. I lived for a long time in, in England, in the UK. Um, one of the things that we find in American culture where we're seeing these processes emerge, but we also find in uh, Australia, in the UK, in very rich, very industrialized, predominantly um, English-speaking countries, uh, these are actually very individualistic cultures. So there are different ways of assessing culture, which are themselves intensely cultural. (laughs) But if you use, for example, uh, the uh, Hofstadter Culture Compass, right, which is a tool, all tools are problematic, but it's a tool for assessing culture, uh, you'll find that those three cultures that I just named really come in very high um, for individualism they come in very low for context. So Americans like to say things like get to the point, cut to the chase, you know, all that stuff about like skip the context. I don't want to hear it. I just want to get to the meat. That is a cultural perspective and it's uh, not one which is shared by, I don't know, most of the world. So it is, I think, a, a legacy of the point, which is probably fading a bit now where American culture Uh, dominated a lot of other cultures that we can look at something like a process model and go, oh, yeah, that's got no context. That's got no history. That's just a thing which exists. It has descended from the heavens. It's completely universal. And we don't need to ask where it came from or what the underlying beliefs and structures were that brought it to us. And as a case in point, I mentioned before J.P. Guilford's research into um, uh, pilot testing aptitudes, uh, which happened in World War II. He was a psychologist, and the thing that he was really, really interested in was, in fact, personality, which is the attributes of the individual. So individualism is at a very literal level baked right into these processes, Mm. But it's not the only culturally determined thing that it's. Okay. There's, there's a pause there waiting for us to kind of say, what is it? Like, yeah. But before you do get into that, though, I was just wondering, so is there a, is there a point with, because we, our industry is just filled with models and, and processes. Yes. Oh I mean, my that's gosh. just, you know, and the oh, arguments oh. to do with them is also as big as the list of models mm-hmm. that we have. But, mm-hmm. um, is there is there a is there a point where or rather is there a starting point for for an for a process or a model that is so simple that it can be detached or sufficiently detached from its cultural context 
Oh. Where does the problem? I think what I'm trying to ask is, where does the problem start? Is it at the very, very beginning, or is it when we start fleshing these out? What an interesting question. So, uh, can I summarise your question? Was the question: Can there ever be such a thing as a an a cultural approach to problem solving? Is that the question? I think that is a that is a good way of of summarizing my question in a into an answerable form. <laughs> okay. So I think I think my question was actually far too far too broad and and general to actually probably give you a yeah. chance of answering it. <laughs> James, I think the answer is maths. Oh, interesting. I think the answer is maths too because if if we are solving uh, a problem uh, that involves humans in any way, it's always going to – there is no such thing as an acultural human. Yeah. There is no such thing as an acultural human. I'm pretty sure there are some historians of mathematics um, who would actually be screaming and jumping up and down for me even saying maths because I'm pretty sure that maths has cultural aspects too. Like when we find things like the invention of zero, which happened in India several thousand years ago, I think that there, I think I've read something saying that even the invention of zero wasn't possible uh, without the cultural context of uh, Hinduism, right? And, and the, the idea of nothing as being a thing that you could understand. So I don't think it might even be maths. You know what, James? I'm going to go out on a limb. I'm going to say no. I'm going to yeah. cut to the chase and I'll say no. <laughs> I, I, yeah, no, I think it, it's, it's a really good point. I, I mean, the maths, maths answer is an excellent one because you, you, you're quite right. I mean, there, that is something which when we're getting beyond humans into, uh, well, into more into science or physics, the laws of physics, I guess is what we're talking about with, with maths, um, then then yeah we're de- detaching the complexity that comes with life with humans um so so yeah maybe you're right that do you is- know what's really interesting um i'm actually i've just recently started by a masters by research in design competency frameworks um and one of the things that i'm looking at there is quite a structured and almost mathematical approach to how we can know that somebody else can know something a really interesting thing that comes out of some of that is that it's very easy to know whether someone knows how to plug in a microphone because you can watch them with a plug and see if they can plug in the microphone. It's very easy to tell someone knows how to open a jar. You give them a jar, right? And you can see if they can open them or not. So where it gets difficult, the, the second that you are inferring a state of mind from an action, right, rather than simply observing a behavior, uh, fundamentally you can't do it. And once the more uh, complex a problem-solving behavior is, the more contextual it is, right? So it's, it's very easy to um, – uh, it's very easy to work out, like it's very, it's very easy to uh, put a, a cap in a bottle, right? But the act of designing a better model will always be contextual to the use of the bottle, the materials, the affordances of the bottle, the, the equipment that you have to hand, um, the, the, how bottles are used in the culture that you're creating them for. So it's, uh, I think it is correct and appropriate to say that the more sophisticated problem solving is, the more it is contextual. And I think it's also correct and appropriate to say that uh, 
cultural context will always be part of the context of complex problem solving, mm. both for the person doing the solving and the environment they're solving for. Yeah, I think we, we talked a while back um, to Stephen Fleming about cognition. And, and in, in that mm. chat, we talked about the concept of mind reading. And, and, mm. and I think, uh, for me anyway, I can see how this connects to that. And, uh, you know, understanding that someone understands and what they, how they react is all part of this mind reading process. So the, the design is, is a huge amount of mind reading. Um, and, and that then becomes cu- cultural and contextual because mm-hmm. how, how I expect you to react <laughs> depends on my ability to read your mind. For sure. And that's the same for users and, and so on, or any design situation, how well we think our solution will be. Mm. Even, even with testing, depends on how, how our ability is to, to interpret, to read the minds of the ones that we're working with. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Do you know what's interesting about the, the brainstorming process, though? Go for it. Is that when it was invented... Go for it. Tell us. <laughs> I love how you're giving us these pauses and I just want to know. I just want to know, Zoe. (laughs) (laughs) All right. So here's something that's interesting about the brainstorming process, culturally speaking. Now, we've already described Alex Osborne and we know he's got that slicked back hair and the madman thing going on. and He's like a razzle-dazzle ad man. And we know that he's a pretty committed capitalist. He's really invested in the 1950s American experience. And we know that that experience is highly individualistic, highly competitive, people competing with each other. And we know that it just doesn't have much of the way of like collaboration is not a highly valued thing. Um, that's, it's just not part of the ethos, but isn't it strange that in this environment, the approach that Osborne came up with actually was intrinsically and profoundly collaborative. So he doesn't have brainstorming as something you go off in a room and do by yourself. He says, no, 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 it's got to be done in a group, right? It's got to be done in a group. And when you're in the group, you have to use the perspective and very specific about this of non-judgment judgment withholding you're not allowed to bash anybody's idea or knock it down as a matter of fact you have to yes and uh the ideas that you come across in in a brainstorming session you're supposed to only build up and up and up and up now that is really almost exactly the opposite of the culture that he was from and that he was working in which is absolutely fascinating because it puts us in a position to ask, well, why? Why is that? Now, just for the record, uh, he himself absolutely denied this. So there's actually a big bit in the book that explains that it might look like the process is collaborative, but what's actually happening is that, you know, people are like being inspired to compete with each other to generate a better idea. So Osborne's commitment to like the competitive mindset is really deeply embedded here. <laughs> so, fascinating. He's committed he so much that he actually himself. goes into denial, even though Absolutely. Yeah, he is like yeah. literally denying the very obvious fact that it is a collaborative process because he's just that culturally committed to uh yeah, to 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 competition. Which is which fascinating is- from a when from this discussion about context and, and cultural context, um, that he can be in so much denial. But it's the ele- I mean the elephant in the room, isn't it? Absolutely. Well, there's a hint. Now, I haven't actually been able to track this all the way down to a definitive uh, statement where I can say, yes, this is an actual definite thing that definitely happened for sure. But there's a hint of 
where this idea sequence might have actually come in from. Uh, and it's written in the second edition of the book where he says that uh, this kind of comfort, this kind of thing isn't actually new. It's not new at all. Um, for example, for hundreds of years, Hindu teachers have been using the practice of prayabhashana uh, to, to like uh, in, in their religious practice. And I read that and I went, oh, that's very, very interesting. And I tried Googling it and I got absolutely nothing back whatsoever because I was Googling like a, an English uh, transliteration of a language that uh, is not written in in uh, European in, um, Roman letters. Are, are ours, it's a Roman letter. No, it's Roman numerals. Latin, What's the alphabet? Latin alphabet. Latin alphabet. Not even written in the Latin alphabet. But very, very fortunately, uh, I know a designer in Mumbai and I was able to call her up and she said, ah, I think if I, I think that might actually be like a Sanskrit word, um, which is a very ancient language that a lot of contemporary Hindi speakers can kind of understand the same way that I can ish understand Old English. Uh Middle English, I can't actually understand Old English at all. It's incredibly difficult. Um, and I followed through. I asked another couple of people I knew and I followed a couple of leads and I went down a couple of rabbit holes. And what I came up with at the end of that um, was that, and some people will have worked this out already. Hello to everyone who's worked it out already. It seems likely that what Osborne was referring to uh, is something called Pariprashna. Which is Pariprashna, yes, which is uh, a practice of uh, respectful question answer, question asking to a guru in order to develop a greater and deeper understanding of what is being said. So rather than accepting blindly what you're told, uh, it's your responsibility within the context of this practice to ask a you don't just go, yep, okay, got it. I'll just walk away and uh, believe you. Uh, it's uh, correct and appropriate to ask respectful questions in order to deepen your insight. So uh, not a contradictory form of questioning, but an expanding uh, form of questioning. So I actually, I think there's a decent enough reason to think that the collaborative, non-judgmental uh, group process that we see in the brainstorming, which is so contrary to everything that was happening culturally around when it was invented, might actually have come from India and uh, ancient India at that, specifically uh, the Bhagavad Gita, which is where Pariprashna is set out. So that's, that's fascinating. So what we see as a creative process potentially has its roots in a teaching process. Effect. Yes, I love that. Brilliant. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. Which is fascinating. It's good, isn't it? <laughs> <clears throat> and, and also, uh, yeah, I mean, I mean, now we're talking about, what, 500 plus years at least, I guess. Oh, um, um, right. So I've been down the rabbit hole on this one too. Uh, it's a little bit contested, but definitely more than 500 years, maybe more like 1,200 but this again, the idea of uh, the the idea of the text being written at the specific date is also part. The idea that this specific text would be written at a specific date in a way that we can track down is itself. Guess what? You know, it's coming cultural, mm -hmm. right? 
because <laughs> not all religious texts work that way. There's a really interesting analogy as well um, that I, I see in uh, the work of another man, uh, and I'm very aware that a lot of the people we're talking about here are literally white American men. In the historical context of the time, those were the people who had the time, energy, and funding to do this work. So here we are, and that's what's going on. And it's so, those models that were kind of fighting against or, or working our way through or exploring <laughs> or delving into. I mean, yep. that, that is, the, that is the, the, the table of things that we have to choose from at the moment, and this is an important part of that work to go beyond it. Well, here's, here's hoping. But for anyone who's ever done uh, what the Americans call therapy or what in Australia we would call counselling, um, for anyone who has uh, ever uh, made use of a suicide crisis line, and for a lot but not all of people who have gone through standard or more common treatments for, for drug addiction, uh, the person who came up with a lot of... The, those practices was also uh, operating in the 1950s and was also really interested in creative problem solving. And his name was Carl Rogers. Now, I'm going to admit to just being a massive fan of this guy. I think he's incredible. Um, the If you've done any counselling in your life, you will probably have had a, a potentially frustrating experience of the counsellor refusing to tell you their opinion on anything. And if you ask them their, their advice, they won't tell you. And if you ask them what you should do, they double, triple, quadruple will not tell you. And that is because the Rogerian philosophy that they're drawing from is actually one that says that people have the power to solve their own problems. Everyone has the power to solve their own problems. And to solve your problems is a creative act. So Rogers was actually working quite closely with and around and in the same circles as Pans and Osborne and everyone else who is operating in, in creative problem solving. Because even though it seems like there should be a million miles um, between a suicide crisis line and the double diamond, in both the practitioner's key job is creative problem solving or helping someone else facilitating creative problem solving. Mm. Now, I've already said that I'm a big Rogers fan, and I absolutely am. And you can read fascinating biographies of this man, but one of the most interesting things about Rogers for me uh, is that he grew up in one of those staggeringly strict um, Christian sects, one of the ones like you get in Kevin Bacon Footloose where you're not allowed to do dancing, like that kind of a thing. And one, of, No, it's true. So one of the formative experiences of his life was actually a trip to China. He went to China uh, with the YMCA, Young Men Christians Association, as a young man, where all of a sudden as this person from this incredibly conservative world, uh, he was exposed to uh, people, ideas, concepts, approaches that didn't exist in his closest world before that. And he, he changed his relationship with, with his cultural origin afterwards. But isn't it interesting that the practices that Rogers brought, which we have in our practices in, in counselling and psychology now, again, non-judgment, mm. observing things in the state and way that they are, being able to assess uh, the feeling uh, emotions as, as separate from reality, 
those were ideas that are not culturally present in the culture that this man grew up with. And yet he was the one who brought them into the field where, where we use them uh, in Western nations still today. And I think there's a very good argument uh, to be made for saying that the ideas that he was exposed to in this transformative trip to China uh, were, were part of that and that we're beneficiaries of that culture, those of us who use these services and practices today. Very nice. One of the first taglines for this podcast was breaking down silos. And it came out of the frustration that James and I had of attending UX conferences where wherein we realized that even designers keep keep actually saying that, oh, everybody's working in a silo, and they themselves are working in a silo because we're just using our, our own thinking, our own design thinking, which we sort of invented that we say, and try, start trying to apply it to all these other silos and say, this is the way we should work. And, and this keeps happening, and it hasn't stopped happening. It, it just, it's almost like it's getting worse. Uh, and and just the, at the, the, frust- the frustration becomes a, the frustration becomes a loop. Exactly. <laughs> So, so is this what is is happening? Uh, that we are adopting things from other cultures, uh, making them our own, and then applying them back onto those cultures. Yeah, I think that's happened quite a bit, actually. I mean, I'm I'm all for like I I think that it's a. Uh, uh, brilliant to to learn uh, from other people. I'm a designer. Of course, I think that's a good thing to do. If I didn't, I wouldn't be any good at this job. <laughs> mm. But yeah, I think there's, um, there's, I, I think uh, history is what it is, right? There's the, the moving finger rights and having writ moves on. You can never change it. And the, the ways that different, uh, uh, different cultures merged is the way that different cultures come together is itself a historical construct. We we can't go back to 1963 and say, hey, everybody, did you know you've actually got to throw around a little bit of credit here? But as contemporary practitioners, we can look backwards and go, oh, check that out. That was actually a merge mm. the whole time. That was actually a coming together. Um, it wasn't necessarily given any credit at the time, but as like a serious, thoughtful practitioners now, maybe we could give a little bit of credit where it's due potentially. Um, I, I think that I, I don't um, – I, I think that it is a wonderful thing for culture to learn from each other. I just absolutely love it. Uh, I also think that uh, – recognition is an intrinsic good basically yeah. whether it's what we're doing now or what we used to do recognition is an intrinsic good and i think what you were saying about with the intersection of therapy and design becomes so interesting to me uh, mm. sometimes i work as a coach and it's it's the same process it's the same non-judgmental oh. attitude which means that right. uh, what i've been saying is that as a consultant people expect me to have answers but I don't want to give answers. I want people to learn how to solve their own problems. And we keep coming with all these models from design saying, I'll solve your problem. This is how we do it. But that's not what I should be doing. So I'm using the model wrong. Uh, in the same way that Osborne got frustrated, we're using the brainstorming process wrong. So we keep using it wrong because we're using it within our own culture and context. That's my conclusion. Also, now. He, was, he was designed... He, and also, he was um, so back to the madman thing and the capitalism, or, or rather, this the the marketing side of things. He was selling, yeah. 
So you you know it's it's an incentive to keep on selling, and that we've seen so many times that you you've not got an incentive all, all the time to explore. Sometimes you have an incentive to deliver. Yes, I would agree with that. And something that I think is under mentioned and under recognised is that if we look at those five design thinking steps, none of them is the ethics step. Yeah. If we look at the double diamond. There's no checkpoint where we identify whether this is something that you should actually do or not. Um, I've got a fabulous book um, on creative thinking methodologies around here somewhere. I'll send you the link. But so it it does an assessment of all the creative problem-solving frameworks that have really been floating around in in the English-speaking world since about like 1929. So there's quite a few of them. And one of the metrics that the book actually assesses on the basis of um, is this this a model that incorporates values? And almost none of them do. Every now and then you'll find a model that has something to say about ethics or values, um, but it virtually never happens. So one of the really reassuring things about looking at the history of creative problem solving is that it's actually very consistent. Um, There are quite a few variations, but the idea that you should understand the problem before you start solving it, the idea that you should generate more solutions than you're going to use, the idea that you should test, that's actually really consistent stuff. It doesn't seem to have changed much for a 100 years. Mm. I love that because it means it's actually pretty reliable and it's good. So that's a, that's a fantastic thing to see from the history. What is Staggeringly disappointing is the total and ongoing absence of incorporation of ethics into the models themselves. Because mm. that which isn't in the process doesn't get done. Exactly. That which isn't measured mm. in value doesn't get done. So if it's not even visible, yep. then... Absolutely. Yeah. It's not on the page. It's not on the page. It's not in the model. It's not there. And what we value yeah. is cultural. Yeah, 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 but yes, I I would love to see a movement towards incorporating ethics. I really, really would. All right, so do you know when design thinking dates to? The answer is 2001. So IDEO, most of their clients were startups and early tech businesses who all crashed and burned and lost all their money overnight. And IDEO didn't really have any their, their client base was was gone. It was it was a, it was just gone, gone away, and they had to pivot really quickly to work out if there was anything else they could actually sell. And what they worked out they could sell was not their services, but the service of their services. They worked out that they could sell their process, and that's actually where design thinking comes from. In an uncanny twist, uh. Back when our friend Alex Osborne and his cigars came up with the idea of design thinking the first time, that wasn't 1953, it was 1938. And he came up with design thinking because his advertising agency was going under and he needed like a, a, a new, he needed a really amazing new process to get himself to get himself out of a potential bankruptcy for his company and he came up with this great process and he sold the process instead and that's an almost perfect parallel with the emergence of design thinking in 2001 when it comes from IDEO. Wow. Oh, I love that. I think we Oh, I love knowing all this. I don't know what I'm going to do with it right now, but I know I love knowing it. 
Well, yeah, I mean, we've 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 darted, we've we've flipped between our design, process, mm-hmm. therapy, ethics, mm-hmm. culture, history, marketing. I mean, we've 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 got a long long list of things that we've um, we've touched upon now with um, with this little um, discussion and lesson that we've had. Well, you can't accuse me of siloed thinking. No, exactly. Oh, absolutely <laughs> not. But it's been absolutely wonderful chatting to you. And like Per says, now we've got a lot of things to unpack and I've got so many rabbit holes to jump yes. into. Oh. <laughs> Thank you, Zoe. Thanks, Zoe, for joining us. <laughs> Thank you so much for having me. It's been lovely. <laughs> Bye, everybody. I think what really gets to me in this interview is this realization that we can we can look at a model and, and think of it as as Zoe said as this universal thing, and you forget that there are so many underlying beliefs, so many value structures that underpin it. So anything we've created that is a model is based within the context of a culture. Yeah, and that, for me, that's the the big takeaway here again is that. You know, we, we look at all these simple models, these simple templates, all these things that we use, and we, we, we don't consider the cultural underpinning of them. And that, yeah. that is unavoidable, as we've learned and heard now talking to Zoe, that you, you know, we can't detach these tools from their, their cultural roots. Um, and our cultures are not universally, you know, the same. I'm now thinking of Wi-Finding, which is so popular in the design space. And people ask, well, why do we use design thinking? Well, because IDEO thought of it. And nobody asks, well, why did they think of it? <laughs> mm. Yeah, Zoe, kept, Zoe pointed out um, to us after the, the interview that um, an interesting parallel between um, Osborne and, and IDEO is that both of them came up with their, you know, their, their famous um, tools, brainstorming and, and um, design thinking. Um, when they were under threat of bankruptcy, yeah, I think they were they were fighting for their survivals as such. So they came up with ideas to help pull them through that. So, so these tools that we use, that we think, I guess, on the surface, are there for for, for creation of good. I guess they're they're there for the you know, for survival. Yeah. So, so like you like you were insinuating, they're products of capitalism. They're that's why we have them. Yeah, which doesn't have to be a bad thing. No, but, I agree. But again, this is this is part of the history of these tools and 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 part of the unwrapping of those tools and understanding of them. I mean, it's 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 not just the culture they're they're built upon, um, which in both those cases is an American culture. It's also the the aspects of um, the the economic culture that is also based in, baked into that culture that is part of them. And, and of course, the frustrating thing, or frustrating, I don't know, but the thing that you need to be aware of and that you need to take to heart at all times working with the double diamond and all these design tools is that when you're trying to apply it to a culture that isn't your own, that may not work. That It may just clash with the values that are present there because you can't work with those steps. It made me think of um, informed consent when we did that interview. Uh, thinking about how cu- cultures don't even understand the concept of informed consent. <laughs> so how can you even ask for it? Yeah. And I think this is where we can we can sometimes maybe think um, a tool doesn't work. Um, a tool is wrong. Mm-hmm. And and it might it might not actually be that it's broken, doesn't work or or, or and, you know so on. Um it just might be that that we've got um a cultural difference which 
really highlights the the cultural underpinning of that tool. Yeah, exactly. So you know, it's not it's 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 wrong, but it's not wrong if you see what I mean. <laughs> right, and I do appreciate how how she also talks a bit about how everybody has the tools to solve their own problems, uh, which essentially means that sometimes we're trying too hard ourselves as designers to solve other people's problems for them rather than with them. And this is, of course, something we talk a lot about when we talk about collaborative design. Yeah, that, um, that intersection of, of therapy and design, mm. that um, there is a lot more in common than maybe we first realized. But you, you, you've done training to be a coach. We know plenty of other people um, who have worked within design and UX who have gone on to do you know, work within coaching, um, which I suppose highlights the, the, the skill set overlap and the, um, the, the passion desire links to both of those right, exactly. um, career paths. You're just trying to get closer and closer to the person you're trying to help each time, almost. Mm. So what have you picked up, uh, uh, out for us for recommend listening, James? Well, I had picked two, but then you've thrown a third one into the mix by uh, mentioning informed consent. Oh, yeah, um, exactly. The interview well. we did, um, which is very much relevant and worth listening to after this. Um, but, of course, um, the chat that inspired Zoe to get in touch with us to, um, you know, to... Ha- to offer this idea for an episode was our chat with Chris McCann about brainstorming that we did um, back in episode 285 of series one. And we also mentioned um, a few concepts that we brought up during our chats um, about a year ago with Stephen Fleming, um, Know Thyself, about cognition. Um, that um, was in episode 305, or was episode 305, series one. And uh, our episode with Kim Folds and Joyce Raffler, uh, named Informed Consent, is episode 301. So if you want us, James and Pear, as part of your next conference, event, or in-house training, we are offering workshops, talks, and courses to inspire and help you grow as individuals, teams, and organizations. Just get in touch by emailing hey at uxpodcast.com. You can actually just get in touch anywhere if you want to. Just chat to us, you know, answer some of the points we made here, or volunteer to help us. Well, that's a nice thought. Thank you. <laughs> Remember to keep moving. See you on the other side. Why was the maths book crying? I don't know, James. Why was the maths book crying? Because it had so many problems. <laughs>